Today we're bringing to a close our study on the theology of hate. There are three passages that I want to read. Um, If you wanted to open your Bibles to one of them, that would be Matthew chapter 5. But I'll begin with Ecclesiastes chapter 3, something that we read this past week as we're reading through the Bible. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep, a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. And then in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse number 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then finally, in Romans 12:9, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. So I said I would want to bring to a close... Um, our study on a theology of hate and to bring in loose ends from the series but also from other things that we've seen over the years. People hate and we are people. Therefore, we hate. But should we? Should we? Aren't we supposed to be in the process of being changed, of being redeemed and reshaped? Reshape. In a word, aren't we supposed to be being made better than what we were? In this series, we have seen and in some cases been reminded of various truths. First of all, we are made in the image of the Creator. And God the Creator is love. But as we've seen, He also hates. But God is not hate. God is love, but God is not hate. hate is, hatred is not an attribute of His. It is a response to that which offends his holiness. So, because we carry the image of the creator, we both love and hate. But because of sin, because of the fall, we can love and hate rather badly. Rather than love being our default setting, uh, more often than not, hate comes much more naturally to us. And we don't hate as God does. As we saw last week, it is, in fact, a disordered hate. In the same way that we don't love as God does, we have disordered loves, so our hates are also disordered. This brings up the question that we've looked at in this series, how does God hate? So we have to ask ourselves, is it a question of his will, of his power, or of his wisdom? And as we looked at God's actions in creating, something that is still going on, it's not something that was finished thousands of years ago, we may tend to focus on God's power, that he spoke and it it came to be, or his will, that he chose to do it. 
wisdom not so much um, we forget that God has a plan um, that there is a telos of use there's an end there's something to which this is all headed the new creation and the new creation isn't God saying oh I messed up on the first one so let's, let's, let's have a do over no this has been God's plan all along um, I'm not sure that we buy it though I'm not sure that we believe it primarily because things are not the way we imagine they should be if God is wise why is there suffering speaking to Lonnie and Tess before the service um, there's been a recent controversy in the Philippines because the president who is wont to not edit what comes out of his mouth uh, last month uh, stated that the God of the Bible is stupid uh, and, and to be fair I think this is primarily an ongoing battle between him and the Catholic Church um, but he said for example uh, if God is wise then why did he create Adam and Eve knowing that they would sin therefore he concluded that God is in fact stupid he also went on to promise that he would resign he would resign from the presidency if anyone could prove that God is real. We might shake our heads at such a person and yet the mess of the world oftentimes causes us to think very similar thoughts. How can we say that God has acted with wisdom when we see the terrible things that surround us? But he does. He has and he continues to act with wisdom. And it is folly for us to imagine that we have enough knowledge by which we can sit in judgment on what God is doing. It's, it's almost like when somebody says, you're the worst, and fill in the blank, you're the worst parent, you're the worst child, whatever. What you're saying or what you're implying is that you know all the parents that have ever lived on this planet and you happen, because you have this infinite, or the, not infinite, but this great knowledge, you know that this person is the worst. Well, no, you don't know all that. In the same way, I think we must be very careful um, to say that God is less than wise in what he has done and is doing. We must come to the conclusion, based on scripture, that God hates and he does so with wisdom. He does so wisely. And I would suggest that we should as well. So, if we are to be guided by wisdom, if we are to hate with wisdom as God does, um, what should this wisdom, what should go into this wisdom? How should it inform our activities? And let me give you a number of things here. I think we need to begin by acknowledging that there is such a thing as right and wrong. These are set by the character of God. You may remember earlier in the series that I mentioned that there are three possibilities when it comes to morality. Um, that good and evil really exist. There's an eternal universal standard to which God himself is subordinate. So God's actions are under this, this rule, if you wish. And so at some point we can say that God does right or that God does wrong. That there's a law behind him. Well, there's nothing behind God. God is first cause. He is the first. He is the eternal one and everything else flows from him. Or, and this is more tempting I think in many ways, particularly as we've been reading through the Old Testament, that good and evil are only names for what God gives to things. 
and that he seems to change his mind for, from time to time, that in certain places this is okay, in other places it's not. Um, that it seems quite arbitrary. But the biblical position is that it is God's character, which is unchanging, that determines and defines what is right and what is wrong. Anything that does not conform to his character is evil, and he is opposed to it. Right and wrong are set forth in Scripture, but as Paul tells us in Romans 2, they are also written on our hearts. We have an innate sense of what we should or should not do. And we cannot have the same stance toward each one. We can't say, well, this is right, and I'm going to look at it this way, and this is wrong, and I'm going to look at it in the same way. No, if something is right, then we must have a positive response to it. If it is evil or if it's wrong, then we should have a negative one. But we live in an age of tolerance, which is quite ironic because people who preach tolerance oftentimes are quite intolerant. Um, we might be tempted to treat the two as the same or treat them in the same way. They're not the same, but treat them in the same way. We should not. Having said all that, the second thing that should go into our wisdom is that we must confess and assent to the reality that we all fall short. There is right, there is wrong, and as Paul says in Romans 7, the thing we should do, we don't, and the things we shouldn't do, we do those things. This, this is true of us, and we must acknowledge it. It's not just in our actions, but I think in our thoughts and our attitudes as well. When the Times of London, over a century ago, asked several of Britain's leading intellectuals what they thought the problem with the world was, the celebrated Catholic journalist G.K. Chesterton sent back a postcard response, I am. We should agree. Um, this is from Os Guinness's book on facing up to the challenge of evil. The same potential for evil and proneness to evil is in every one of us. Our first response to evil may be legitimately shock, grief, or outrage. But before we take action... Our second response should always be an examination of our own hearts. Me too? Interesting. There but for the grace of God go I. If only there were evil people somewhere, Solzhenitsyn wrote in the Gulag Archipelago, insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. If only we knew where all the people were, we could exile them to an island somewhere. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Cannot emphasize this strongly enough. We are all sinners. And as such, we all deserve God's hatred. The third thing that we've seen in this series, and that should go into this packet of wisdom if you wish, is that hatred is not the only possible response. Our view of God and hate should not be simplistic. It should not be devoid of mercy and of grace. Otherwise, we will find ourselves not only being like the Pharisees, but we will find that God will end up hating us because we, in fact, are sinners as well. The fact that hatred is not the only response is seen supremely in the cross. Jesus dying on the cross for us. Paul told the Romans, God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, 
he could put in parenthesis, deserving God's hatred, Christ died for us. Those who are made in the image of the Creator, we who are being redeemed and reshaped in the image of Christ, need to remember in wisdom that hate is not the only possible response, even to the most heinous of acts. I think we might be willing to be merciful to, let's say, this category over here, but there's a certain line and we're like, that's it. No. Um, No mercy, no grace. Now to shift gears a bit, the fourth thing that we will put into this wisdom that will guide us in our hatred is to acknowledge that we have enemies. And we see this in our, in our passage from Matthew 5. We're told to love our enemies. And again, it may go right past us, but if we're to love our enemies, that means we have enemies, right? Um, Jesus assumes that, in fact, we will have enemies. Those who stand in opposition to the things of God and the people of God, that is to us. There's a famous essay written by Stanley Harawas in 1995, and Tom can tell you about this after the service. He's read it a number of times. It's entitled, Preaching as Though We Had Enemies. It's a theologian, and he's taking on post-modernity, but modernity as well. And he makes the case that the church has failed to acknowledge that it rightly has enemies. Let me just read a small part. I, I wish I could read the whole sermon to you. You can Google it when you get home, uh, and I would encourage you to read it. Liberal Christianity, of course, has enemies, but they are everyone's enemies. Sexism, racism, homophobia. But liberal versions of Christianity, which can be both theologically and politically conservative, assume that what it means to be Christian, qua Christian, or as a Christian, is to have no enemies peculiar to being a Christian. Psalms such as Psalm 109, which we looked at last week, an imprecatory psalm, which ask God to destroy our enemies and their children, can appear only as embarrassing holdovers of primitive religious beliefs. Equally problematic are apocalyptic texts that suggest Christians have been made a part of the cosmic struggle. We saw this in our study of Daniel. We need to ask ourselves simply, how can I love my enemies if I have no enemies? In Deuteronomy 30, The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies who hate and persecute you. This is what we find in Matthew 5 as well. Those who hate, those who persecute you. Those seeking to do harm. And Jesus says that we are to pray for those who persecute us. Pray for those who persecute you. Diedrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. This is the supreme command. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. If our prayer to God, interceding for someone, is an expression of love, then we must love the one for whom we are praying. And beyond that, praying for that person is a fact, a means of increasing our love for that person. So we don't wait till we feel like, oh, I want to, this person here has been annoying me or this person's been doing these things or they're really doing horrible things. When I reach a certain point, then I will start praying for them. No, we are to pray for those who persecute us. We must obey the commands of Jesus. And in doing this, we show who we really are. 
we have to ask ourselves, are we really the children of God? Are we merely the children of Adam? Do we love like God does? Or do we love as other human beings do? Because being made in the image of God, we have the capacity uh, to love, pagans love, the tax collectors love. Um, Are we doing what God does or simply what other people do? Even though fallen and separated from God and corrupted by sin, we still love, but we love badly. As the Spirit does His work in our lives, we are to pray for those who hate us, those who are our enemies. Number five is to tack on to that. We are to love our enemies and pray for them, and we are to forgive them. This really then begins to make muddy the water when it comes to the issue of hatred. One of the keys to how we are to respond to our enemies is forgiveness. And it is here that the cross of Jesus takes us in a direction that even though we are so familiar with it, is really truly counterintuitive. Os Guinness in his book on evils says, arguably forgiveness is the single clearest greatest contribution of Jesus of Nazareth to world affairs. To forgive those who hate us, those who are our enemies. If I were to say to you, you're supposed to hate your enemies, we'd be okay with that. But we are to love them, pray for them, we are to forgive them. But what is forgiveness? Well, it's not some sentimentality. It has nothing to do with sentimentality. It is, in fact, a sacrificial act an act of sacrifice. Mark Twain described forgiveness as the fragrance that the violet sheds on the heel that has crushed it. Yeah, that sounds really nice, but it's, I think, almost a little sappy and sentimental. Um, Forgiveness costs. It really does cost. It's not sentimental. Secondly, true forgiveness has nothing to do with utilitarianism or cynicism. Like, well, if I forgive this person, then they'll be in my debt. Um, Oscar Wilde said, always forgive your enemies. Nothing annoys them so much. Uh, That's not Christian forgiveness. That's manipulation. That's not what Jesus calls us to. I think even what Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 12, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Again, this might be seen as a cynical or manipulative way to deal with those who are your enemies. I'll do good to them, and in doing so, I'm basically throwing coals on their head. No. But thirdly, forgiveness is not the same as tolerance or condoning something. In the 20th century, horrendous things have happened. And I think we are afraid that if we, in fact, forgive the people who have done these horrendous things, we might be seen as condoning what they have done, as as if to say we are... We're saying it's not that bad. It's a bad thing, but but we can live with it. That somehow we are tolerating the intolerable. Um, The reality is, we are to call evil, evil. 
and the magnitude of the evil we should allow to sink in. And then we should be willing to forgive. We should be willing to forgive. In other words, forgiveness confronts the evil as evil and the wrongdoer as guilty, but refuses to retaliate and so refuses to play evil's game and let evil have the final say. In an interview with Malcolm Gladwell, he mentioned an incident um, in Canada, he's from Canada, of a, a Mennonite family that their teenage daughter uh, was somehow kidnapped. I don't think she was walking to school. And uh, some months later, uh, the police found her body. She was frozen in, in a shed somewhere. Uh, she'd been sexually assaulted, abused by the person who did this. And they, were, they caught the man who had done this. And one of the first things this family said, the father and mother, is we must pray for that man. We must pray for him. That is not to say that what he did is, is nothing. That it's okay. Of course it's not. It's horrible. But there is to be forgiveness. Fourthly, true forgiveness is not a matter of strength or a matter of virtue. And again, this is contrary to what we hear in the world. Gandhi said the weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is the attribute of the strong. No, this is not what we find in Scripture. It is, in fact, the widow and the fatherless, the alien, those who have been abused, who can, in fact, turn around and forgive those who have abused them. Somehow we might imagine forgiveness as a strong person standing and saying, yes, I forgive you, somehow making this wonderful pronouncement um, that somehow forgiveness becomes a grand act. Christian forgiveness, as we find in Scripture, is the gratitude of a humble person forgiving as he, she has been forgiven by God. They're reciprocating. The way, the reason that this Mennonite couple can want to pray for the person who did this horrible thing to their daughter is because they recognize they have been forgiven by God. We should as well. And lastly, forgiveness is, like love, it may in fact be quite costly. I don't know how often we connect forgiveness and love in our thinking. I, I think we know this is what love is, this is what forgiveness is, and we don't necessarily see them as tied together. Um, I don't love you, but I'll forgive you, oftentimes is our mentality. And in a way, we become, I think, almost flippant about forgiveness. One writer put it this way, one forgives to the degree that one loves. And I would say, if you do not love, then you do not forgive. Forgiveness, like love, is not primarily about a feeling. It is about an action. That we are, in fact, to love our enemies to pray for those who persecute you. Love and forgiveness are matters of obedience rather than sentiment or emotion. Vengeance is, in fact, the normal, automatic, fallen response. When we are wronged, we want to wrong in return. When someone does something horrible and sneaky against us, we want to respond by doing something more horrible and sneakier against them. To forgive 
requires thought because it's not something that happens automatically. On some level, we do like the idea of forgiveness because it puts people in our debt. If I forgive you, then then maybe five years from now I can say, hey, remember that time I forgave you? You did that horrible thing to me and I forgave you. Remember that? We like people being in our debt. Um, On the other hand, we don't like forgiving people who aren't sorry for what they've done. That's a tough one. But I would remind you that forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. Forgiveness requires one party, me, that I forgive a person. Whether they acknowledge that they've done wrong or not, whether they ask forgiveness, I forgive them. Reconciliation requires two parties, that that person admits they're wrong, I forgive them, and we are reconciled. The Lord's Prayer, I think, is critical for us to understand the importance of forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Augustine called this the terrible petition in the Lord's Prayer. He said, if we pray that prayer and fail to forgive our fellow human beings as we have been forgiven, we are actually asking God not to forgive us. Forgive us as we've forgiven others. If we haven't forgiven others, yeah. We might want to pray, may we forgive others as you have forgiven us. I think that would make sense. But that's not what Jesus gave us. Robert Louis Stevenson, the author, used to pray the Lord's Prayer every morning with his family. The family would gather together and they would pray the Lord's Prayer. One day as they were gathered in the middle of the prayer, he jumped up from his knees and ran and left the room. His wife ran after him because she thought he was sick. Something had happened to him. And said, what's the matter? Are you sick? No, he answered. But I am not fit to pray the Lord's Prayer today. He took it seriously, and we should too. And particularly as we are trying to construct a theology of hate, we need to know the place of forgiveness. The last thing that I want to put into our packet of wisdom, if you wish, there are other things, but I'll close with this. While standing for what is right, which we often do badly, we are to love. We are to love. This is to be our default setting. And here we require wisdom to know and to remember what love is. Love doesn't mean allowing someone to do anything that they want. You don't allow a child to run out into the street, into traffic, because you love the child. Um, Because you love the child, you want the child to be safe. You don't let him or her go into the street. You pull him out of the street. And if, in fact, the child continues to do that, at a certain point, discipline may be required. And discipline doesn't mean you hate the child. It, in fact, means that you love the child. The question is, when should you discipline the child? And this is where wisdom is required. I remember someone saying to me many years ago that if a kid puts a marble or a series of marbles in his mouth, the discipline for that is very different than if they don't want to eat their peas. If they don't want to eat their peas, you know, some some people don't like peas, okay, but if they put marbles in their mouth, they are endangering their lives. Okay, and that's a whole different ballgame. We need the wisdom and uh, as God's people to know when we should say something and some, you know, sometimes we should pray.
pray for these people and not in fact respond in, with any type of verbal statement, uh, but pray for these people. I would have you consider that so often God does not respond immediately to the bad things we do. Think about that. Can you look back, and perhaps it's not a healthy thing, but look back over our lives when we've done things we shouldn't do and just be amazed that God didn't strike us dead. And we did it again. And he still didn't strike us dead. That God in his love does not respond immediately. He is gracious. He is merciful. He wants us to learn. He wants to teach us. Now, sadly, oftentimes the fact that God doesn't respond allows people to think, oh, well, it's okay. God's okay with it. He didn't say no. He didn't hurt me or anything. So what I did must not have been that bad. The reality is God, who is love, he's not hate, he is love. He may, in fact, hate what you are doing. But in his grace and his mercy, does not respond immediately with discipline. He is patient. And I love what we find in the King James, not so much in the newer translations. He is long-suffering. He suffers long with our disobedience. We, as those who are made in the image of God and being recreated in the image of Jesus Christ, must hate with wisdom. And what we read from Ecclesiastes, there's a time to be silent and a time to speak. There are times when we are to confront evil and there are other times when we are not. It requires wisdom. And we should consider again that God has been gracious and patient and merciful and look to the Spirit. I don't think we look to the Holy Spirit for wisdom because we think we've got it covered. We know what to do. I would tell you that as a pastor, having faced certain situations, it's very tempting to say, oh, well, in this situation, this was the right thing to do. So if it comes up again, I'll do the exact same thing. That's saying I don't need the wisdom of God. The reality is every situation is different. Every person is different. And we need God's wisdom. Let's bring this to a close. Let us acknowledge as a congregation that apart from the work of God, the continuing work of God in our lives, we cannot hate as we should. We are much more likely to hate wrongly while all the time thinking that we're doing right. We think we're doing the right thing. I'm standing up for the truth. I'm correcting that person. I'm telling them, that he or she is wrong. We are more likely to speak when we should be silent and more likely to be silent when we should speak. We need wisdom from God. And in going through scripture and see how God responds to evil, how God hates, how God is patient and gracious and merciful, and by his spirit working our lives, begin to see things as we should. We should love our enemies and pray for them. But there are things that we are to hate. 
but we are to do so with wisdom. Someone told me last week, uh, Damon, only you would think of doing a series on hating. Um, The reality is it's part of our lives. This is not a part of our lives that we can just, we're not going to talk about that. Whatever we do, we are to do all to the glory of God. We know how to, we should know how to do it right. And when it comes to hatred, I think we have been deficient, God's people as a whole. And I hope that in this series, we've got beginning to get a better grip on how it is we are to respond to evil, to the things around us. And that how, by God's grace, we are to hate with wisdom. Let's pray together. Father, even now, after six weeks of looking at this, it seems so strange to talk about hating rightly or correctly, or hating with wisdom. But we are made in your image. We are being recreated, reshaped into the image of your Son. And you hate evil. But you do so with wisdom, with mercy, with long-suffering. I pray that by your Spirit, as we think through the things we've heard in the past weeks, that we would have a better sense of how we are to respond to those around us. The temptation is very strong, particularly in today's culture, to live and let live. But then we may go to the other extreme and find ourselves thinking that we are the spiritual police going around and telling everyone what they're doing is wrong or what they, that what they have done is wrong. And then, I think for many of us, there's a tendency not to want to say anything. To inwardly cringe, but not speak. We need wisdom. And wisdom is a gift from you. As we read through your word this year, as we meet every Sunday, as we pray, may we begin to receive the gift of wisdom and know how it is we are to deal with those around us. Help us to remember that we will fail, but that failure is not fatal. We learn by our failures, by your grace. Earlier today we spoke of things we wanted to remember in prayer. We think of Rory's friend who has a job interview and asks that you would open the right doors for him. For the Greenholds as they come back to us, keep them safe. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. May we be lights in a world of darkness by your grace. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.